Welcome to Rogue News. We are the preeminent geostrategic, geoeconomic, and geopolitical news show on YouTube and on the web. Join us for hard-hitting analysis, behind-the-scenes strategy, and brutal commentary. Find out why many consider us the place to get their news and information. Check us out at roguenews.com. Follow us on Twitter at Real Rogue News, Facebook, and most of the popular podcasting apps. Most of all, remember to subscribe, like, comment, and share. Welcome to Rogue News. We are the preeminent geostrategic, geoeconomic, and geopolitical news show on YouTube and on the web. Join us for hard-hitting analysis, behind-the-scenes strategy, and brutal commentary. Find out why many consider us the place to get their news and information. Check us out at roguenews.com. Follow us on Twitter at Real Rogue News, Facebook, and most of the popular podcasting apps. Most of all, remember to subscribe, like, comment, and share. Hey, good morning, folks. Being the Gorilla Economist, we have with us the man of the hour who needs no introduction at this point. Is the one and only Matthew Aaron, and I urge you, if you haven't done so already, make sure you go to his Substack. Oh, there you go. You're nice and clear now. <laughs> make sure you go to his Substack. Make sure you subscribe and make sure you go to CanadianPatriot.org as well as the RightSideFoundation.net. Support Matthew and his great work as he breaks down the great game. This is probably one of the most critically important times in human history where we're seeing the transition from one system to the other and Matthew Eric is one of the few voices that correctly frames the play-by-play of what is going on and within the great historical context that this narrative plays out on so it's super super important for you to tune in it's super important for you to subscribe to his Substack. It is very important and crucial. You go to CanadianPatriot.org as well as the Rising Tide Foundation.net. And most of all, get his book. In, under, in order to understand the game, you got to understand how the rules are played. In order to understand the rules, you got to understand the history, how it all began. Matthew's book lays it out. Make sure you go and get his book. With that being said, Matthew Eric, what's up, buddy? How are you? Hey, not much. Very, I'm doing really good. Thank you for having me on. As always, Vito, it was a pleasure to talk to you, and thank you for that wonderful introduction, as always. Um, and yeah, I really do hope that people uh, buy the book. The second volume has been out for a few weeks now, um, The Clash of the Two Americas. Obviously, the importance right now uh, of understanding history is at a, at a premium, because we're going into a world of a lot of psyops, a lot of false narratives, a lot of false framing of information to make sure that the people who have everything to gain by working together and seeing a common uh, workable orientation, which is both possible and necessary, uh, that that does not happen. So there's a lot of effort being made right now to, to break up people intellectually, physically, into different tribes, camps, different ideological groups into like a broken up mosaic yeah. so that we're so busy arguing and disputing amongst ourselves that we don't see that there's a higher hand uh, pushing us all towards a common uh, destination, which looks a little bit like a slaughterhouse. Um, so history is one of the best immediate accessible places for us to get that context to see how this game is being played. How has it worked out in the past, both for good and for bad? The point I try to make at making my my two volume uh, book, which I'd co-written with my wife, um, is that 
history is not really as we're often taught about nation states fighting against each other, trying to become empires, trying to, you know, get control of limited resources in a fight with weaker countries right. uh, to express and impose their hegemony, which is how we're often taught in a variety of ways, both in left, right, leaning circles. There's that sort of common view that that's what history is shaped by, um, which is not true. They're, they're, there is and there always has been in existence a supranational above nation states. Right. Um, even before there were nation states, there was empire as an oligarchical system that utilized certain techniques of thought control, manipulation, emotional manipulation, which ties into that thought control stuff that goes back to the days of ancient Babylon. Mm. Um, and if you don't recognize the shadow government, this this sort of fifth column thing infiltrating and trying to manipulate everybody, you can't make sense of anything from the American Revolution to why the Civil War happened to why um, China had a, a revolution in 1911 modeled on Abraham Lincoln's policy fight with Sun Yat-sen, the first president. You yeah. can't understand any of that stuff, and you definitely can't understand anything happening today. Yeah, 100% correct, man. Even the letters that Washington would pen right after he was president where he was concerned about the French Revolution, that initially the rumors were it's something that's similar to the American Revolution, and the founding fathers stood there in stark horror as they found out that the Jacobins, re basically the Illuminists, the uh, rebranded globalist uh, psychopaths, were at it again in France. And so a lot of these things get skipped, man. A lot of these things are completely forgotten about and people don't take it seriously. The very ideologues and the ideologies that have germinated since then are still with us today and we are still fighting it, man. Absolutely. And I'm glad you brought up the French Revolution because today I wanted to talk a little bit about Kazakhstan and the other failed oh, yeah. uh, revolutions of, that have been uh, <clears throat> fortunately um, yeah. beaten down before they could go the, uh, the Ukraine route. Um, but to, you know, the, the French revolution is in a very real way, sort of the prototype for the modern color revolutions that have stained the world since especially 1986, um, and the collapse of the Soviet union, which was really brought about, you know, um, the, the, the entire idea was that finally we had achieved the end of history, right? The, the, with the Cold War age coming to an, an end, uh, you had an age of Western monetarists, liberalizers, Friedmanites, Thatcherites being sponsored by libertarian uh, think tanks um, in Britain, in the United States, and they were being embedded across the Russian uh, establishment, or across the, the Chinese establishment throughout the 1980s. And this is a time where you have Thatcher, you know, Thatcher's economics, you got Reaganomics, uh, which was essentially just total deregulation of the entire economy, the uh, creation of mergers and the acquisitions to the to the wazoo and the creation of universal banking, starting with the, the Big Bang, uh, which was really, I mean, th this was giving power to a private cartelized uh, grouping of non-nation state actors to have more <laughs> power than nation states. So this was in large measure a planned takeover of nation states that would had formerly been created as instruments by the people to protect ourselves and do battle with this international oligarchy. You, you know, you, you touch base on something real quick, man. You, you, yeah, you, sure. You, you mentioned the Big Bang, right? The, yeah. the, the city of London Big Bang, where there was a, a ridiculous amount of financial deregulation that occurred in the city of London that allowed them to create such wonderful things that really help the people like rehypothecation where they could rehypothecate a person's deposit in a bank 
and hyperinflate that to oblivion. And if you notice right after the Big Bang, within a few years of the Big Bang, going into the, I think within a decade within the Big Bang or so, that's when, you know, the tentacles from the city of London were making its way into the American banking system through Wall Street. And what they wanted was was some sort of a synergy, some sort of a connection. In order for that connection to be filled, in order for the, the ultimate dream, the ultimate design of the Big Bang to happen, Clinton had to get rid of Glass deal. Boom. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. That was the precedent. That was yep. the precedent because exactly. the Americans were told, look, the British have done it. They're the center of world finance. They're pretty uh, they're pretty smart on when it, on economics and it's it's working really well for them. So why are we still <laughs> holding on to the nineteen you know, 1950, 60 idea of an industrial economy that had separated commercial banking and investment banking so that you couldn't speculate with people's savings. Why are we still holding on to this old way of doing things? The new way is just anything goes. And that was the precedent that killed, yeah, Glass-Steagall, like you said, and then also ultimately led into the complete deregulation of derivatives in the ensuing, you know, couple of years there thereafter, which has now created what was already a bad time bomb that could do nothing but collapse back in 1998, 1999. Now this, this time bomb has become magnitudes larger than it was then. Right. Um, and ultimately the, the solution is, is pretty much the same thing. It's not, it's not rocket science in the, in the arrogant sense of the term. This is, it literally requires that we simply recognize that we are on a Titanic, that this is, that there are functional boats out there. Um, but we have to recognize that we cannot hold on to this thing. We can't bail it out. We cannot do gr gr uh, great resets or green new deals. Those are not going to work either. Um, but all that to say that, you know, we're talking about color revolutions. So the thing about what happened in the 1990s was that the National Endowment for Democracy, which was pretty much the, the head of that in 1991, David Ignatius had even said that uh, what we do today is largely what the CIA used to do covertly 25 years earlier. Right. And this was created out of the Trilateral Commission. This was something that um, David Rockefeller, Z uh, Zbigniew Brzezinski, um, Samuel P. Huntington, they organized a series of task forces in the 1970s, whereby um, essentially it was put online that we need another branch of the government to do the sorts of things because, you know, the U the CIA had formerly been managing a lot of coup d'etats, a lot of assassinations throughout the Cold War. But the problem was a lot of people were beginning to pick up on that, especially with the church committee hearings that were going on exposing the CIA abuses um, all over the world, um, including the JFK murder and cover up. There's a lot. So that was all becoming finally brought to the surface and they needed to do sort of a, a makeover. So this idea of creating another department that would be independent, that would utilize more civil civic society, NGO type operations that would then carry out these sorts of thing, uh, overthrows of governments that were not obedient to a rules-based order would be then useful. And the National Endowment for <coughs> Democracy was capitalized with or $33 million of taxpayer money in 1983. Um, and this is something that was, again, coordinated very closely with the city of London. And it got to work very, very quickly by, you know, encouraging things like the color revolutions of the Philippines, um, putting new reformers, new economists, like I mentioned, you know, being infused into Russia, into China. Uh, these libertarian minded monetarist worshippers of the markets were being infused around the Yeltsin circles who later came to power in Russia around Gorbachev. 
around Zhao Ziyang in China, who luckily was purged. They tried a color revolution in China, and you and I have talked about this a few times, but that was luckily put down in 1989 in Tiananmen Square. That was supposed to be a color revolution. Um, but the guy running it with George Soros, uh, Zhao Ziyang, who was the head of the, the Chinese Communist Party, was caught red-handed for being what he was and was purged and uh, put under house arrest. His allies were largely arrested or they escaped to the U.S. through triads in Hong Kong. In Russia, it was a success. And we know that in the former Soviet space, after Russia had agreed to, to basically dissolve the Soviet Union and the, this whole idea of a end of history, one world, you know, unipolar hegemony was now here. All of these former governments, Poland and Romania and, and so many other governments that were part of the Warsaw Pact were infused with billions of dollars of Soros money, which has always been his open societies have always been overlapping very closely with the National Endowment for Democracy, with Freedom House, um, throughout that entire Soviet space. So that all of their... Um, all of the the new reformers that they were funding to bring into positions of power were all that immediately putting their resources into integrating those countries into not only the IMF, what became the World Trade Organization, um, as far as just binding them to the, the to the control of a private central banking cabal centered in the Bank of International Settlements in Basel and in London, um, but then also NATO, right? To, to bring them into and and get ready get ready to get these different countries, which is exactly what happened. There would be since 1998, 16 countries integrated into the NATO uh, alliance, which just grew and grew and grew, always with the intent of ultimately taking control of the monopoly of world military systems. All of this, like I said. You, you brought up the French Revolution. This comes from the French Revolution that we're told was just like the American Revolution. It overthrew one old regime. It brought in a new revolutionary regime. No, it didn't. No, it didn't. It did not. The U.S. The U.S. experience actually created something that had much more potential for good by overthrowing the, the imperial monarchical hereditary system and then established a republican system of constitutional government. That was different. It was not perfect. It, it was not the end of the fight, but it was definitely something much, much better on a qualitative level. Whereas in France, what did you get with the Jacobins yeah. who were just these essentially these young reformers with brain dead young reformers who wanted to just overthrow everything? Exactly. You didn't get you got fucking Napoleon. Well, you got five years of civil war. You got people like Robespierre, Danton Marat, who were all on the payroll, by the way, of British intelligence who became rabble rousing. Um, kind of like Navalny's. Essentially, yeah. Navalny is a carryover of these types of characters. Oh, 1,000%. He's a fraudster. Totally. Oh, yeah. Just yeah. bitching about corruption everywhere. Yeah. To the point that everybody, good and bad alike, if you were a, if you were perceived to be among the elite, um, didn't matter if you were a scientist, didn't matter if you were a good person, you were going to lose your head. And thousands of people had their heads chopped off um, very, very quickly to the point that there was no leadership just and just pure chaos. The treasury was completely emptied out, looted. There was no ability for the for France to carry out basic economic activity. And in that vacuum, another Rothschild-sponsored uh, solution was being provided, which was Napoleon, right? right. Who essentially had visions of restoring a, a world empire, a Roman empire, declaring himself as empire uh, emperor to take over the world that ran roughshod for 20 years of, of constant wars. And you know, Washington's networks in the United States, the founding fathers, 
understood that this was, if they were going to get caught into supporting that type of false fake revolution, that they would be enmeshed very quickly into something that was ultimately a trap you would never be able to get out of. So that was where Washington gave his famous speech of no foreign entanglement. We must focus on America first, on fo just, you know, clean house, make yourself a competent country that has industrial capacities, that has a, a competent population, which is developing, which is culturally advanced. And then you could start, you know, thinking about the rest of the world. But right now, in the, especially in those early stages, and I would say that America is still a young country. It's only 250 years old. You know, China's 5,000 years old. Right. Um, it, it, it still has a lot of learning and, and just figuring out how this works, being a, a real sovereign nation works. Um, so one should not go about looking for monsters to destroy was another idea from John Quincy Adams, who carried right. this forward, you know, that we should have a Monroe Doctrine to keep um, European imperialists from integrating and infiltrating the all of the americas and just promote economic development from the standpoint not of m purely monetary worshiping but real productive development of large-scale infrastructure science technology the arts and that's how you're actually going to be able to have a coherent I mean, country listen to what, remember yeah. what also the other thing that i, I actually talked to touched a base upon it this morning about quincy uh, john quincy adams he said you know the west i mean america should be the well-wisher of freedom and independence for all mm -hmm. but the champion and vindicator only of her own. It's a powerful statement. Mm -hmm. We should be the mm -hmm. well-wisher of freedom and independence for all, but we should be the vindicator and the champion of our own people. Exactly. Yeah. Clean up your own house. Yeah. Exactly. Just like make it make it work. Show you know, walk the walk. And also, also one thing, real quick, man. Yeah. I want to touch base on this. You know, sure, we're sure. talking about Kazakhstan. A lot of people get confused. Okay, a lot of people have this stupid idea, which was created on the annals of some internet retard. Uh, which is, uh, you know, they talk, they, they, these idiots have formulated this stupid idea that Kazakhstan is the capital of the new world order. It's not. Okay, yeah. that it look that originated with some uh, harebrained, uh, some individual who went on an Alex Jones show and told that Alex Jones, now, Alex. I find him entertaining. I think a, a lot of the domestic issues of what goes on with government and government spying, he, he's, you know, he, he's pretty good at that. Mm -hmm. But when it comes to the international geopolitical geostrategic game, he, he's, he's a kindergartner. He is literally a kindergartner in comparison to what is being spoken about, what is being discussed on a channel like here. Kazakhstan, the reason why it has all these occultic uh, monuments and this, that, and the other, that would, you know, the, the new world, these new world order symbolism, is Nazultan Nazarbayev, who was the dictator in chief for several, several decades in Kazakhstan, erected that he was a Western lackey. His financial consultant, who handled all of his funds and most of the funds for Kazakhstan, is none other than Sir Anthony Blair. Okay, mm. Tony Blair handled that. Mm. Okay? The guy's mm. a total Western stooge, and to show his obedience and his allegiance, he built a lot of these monuments. Now, in terms of the that has anything to do with the current situation or the current people in Af in Kazakhstan and what their views and points are, it is completely diametrically opposite. It has nothing to do with it. It's not the capital. You want to talk about the capital of the New World Order? City of London, baby. That's what. That's the capital. Go ahead. Matt. Absolutely. No, you're, you're, you're absolutely right. And another guy who was just, I mean, I was a little bit surprised. I didn't, I hadn't really paid proper attention to the deep state operations, the fifth column work in, uh, in Kazakhstan until obviously this current blow up 
last week started, you know, giving me and many other people the opportunity to like put our, our minds to it a little bit more and map it out. But a lot of work has been done. And as you pointed out, the city of London, the uh, the Soros NED, National Endowment for Democracy Interests, have been all over Kazakhstan for a very long time. And I had formerly thought, okay, they're members of the Shanghai Cooperation Organization. I'm going to show an image here as well. Um, anybody who really wants to get a sense of, you know, what is it about Kazakhstan that makes it such a, a strategically important zone? This is just one of the key branches of the, the Belt and Road Initiative. You can see that, right? Yep, I can see it. I have it up. Obviously, from China all the way to Moscow, this is the a, a very important branch of rail, but also you have pipelines going throughout the entire zone. Uh, in yellow is oil pipelines, blue are gas pipelines. Then you have rail networks as well going through from Kazakhstan, southward through Uzbekistan, Turkmenistan, Iran. You have another rail line being built up right now that was signed on just a few weeks ago um, between Iran, Turkmenistan, and Uzbekistan that's being constructed. You got, again, one of the biggest oil and natural gas exporting zones, especially with their Kazakhstan's controls over the Caspian Sea, some of the most abundant sources in the world. Um, not only that, I mean, here's another example here. This is a, a broader scope out of the BRI moving through uh, different corridors in Iran. But again, you see that it's cusping the border with uh, China, with Russia. It has the biggest border, about 500 5,000, sorry, miles that it shares with Russia, another 2,600 miles that it shares with China. Um, obviously, this is super important. And I didn't even talk about the S-500 systems that Russia is currently testing out primarily in Kazakhstan. They have Russia's uh, primary Cosmodrome, which where you know they used to deploy all of their satellites and space capsules into outer spaces in Kazakhstan for geographical reasons. Um, the North-South Transport Corridor plays an important role, you know, as well as the BRI. Kazakhstan, it doesn't move through it directly, but it definitely plays a key role. Um, it is the top uranium-producing nation of the world. 43% of known deposits are located in Kazakhstan, and we know that Russia and China are leading, along with India, global nuclear power development. Yep. So there's so many points that make this super strategic, and Again, I had thought it, it was a safer country. I thought it was more in, under the control of competent people. But as you pointed out, you, you, you know, you have people like Nazarbayev, who hey, call has been revolutions are cheap, Matt. Huh? Call them revolutions are extremely cheap. They, they don't cost a lot of money to, to, to do. No, they don't. I mean, they were doing it here in the U.S. back in 2016 all the way through 2020, and they were paying these people, you know, 15, 16 bucks an hour over here. It's very cheap to do over there in Europe. And Eastern Europe, particularly. Oh yeah, and they were they were they were flying people in from Tajikistan as well. Uh, oh, yeah. People are 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 not living in with abundance. So I mean, you offer people a couple hundred bucks to go to a protest, they're gonna they're gonna tend to do it, even if they don't even know what exactly it is that they're protesting. And then you place a lot of your um, your violent provocateurs in strategic positions, and the thing can turn into Ukraine 2.0 very quickly, as is what we saw happening. And you know. <laughs> Another guy that I that I, I noticed was also arrested was not just Nazarbayev. Nazarbayev wasn't arrested. He was taken out of his position as the head of the uh, the Security Council, which is what he'd been doing for two years since they he he stepped down as uh, as head of the government. But uh, his key collaborator was the former Prime Minister uh, Karim Masimov, who was the intelligence chief, and he was called by Hunter Biden, my good friend, um, Masimov. 
close, close friend integrated with the Biden family. You got the, the Blair networks all over the place. Um, and he was arrested for treason. Now, early on, it was discovered. And it seems like there was a bit of a trap to, to really get this fifth column to show itself because the Security Council was the reason why this thing got so out of hand so quickly, where there was actual commands, it appears, that were given to make sure that the, the violent protesters who were very well armed, it was a very well coordinated blow up on a variety of points um, at the same time all over Kazakhstan with a focus on the capital. There was a stand down and these people were effectively given armaments that were that were in the presidential residence that was lit on fire, just like they did in, in Ukraine, in the... Um, the armories as well, the uh, the national security buildings were seized and that was done with the complicit cooperation of the Security Council of Nazarbayev. So, you know, this this brought the pus to the surface and then this is where you had Russia, Belarus was also brought in with the uh, the security, uh, what's it called, the, um, forgetting, forgetting the name of it, um, the, the um, what's the name of that, that Security Council? I'm just forgetting all of a sudden the oh name. Oh my God. Uh, 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 it's like the the anti NATO uh, yeah. council. Uh, anyway, we know what we're talking about. Uh, but they were basically brought in. They cleaned up shop, and it seems like most of it has been put down. But one of the key things is that that really caught my attention is that um, this oligarch uh, Mukhtar Abliazov was uh, has been in London for years. He was exiled. Um, he was basically caught on embezzlement charges and was sentenced to prison, but he, he was exiled. He, he avoided prison by leaving and going to, to London where, uh, and France, he makes both of those his headquarters. And he's been leading the, the, um, the opposition, this resistance for a long time, calling for the overthrow of the government. And there have been WikiLeaks documents circulated from the State Department that had him directly calling for and coordinating, saying that, and, and basically um, taking pride in the fact that he was coordinating the regime change that had to happen in Kazakhstan, whereby he was going to somehow be brought back in and placed in control of that government. And it seems like that was likely what was going to happen, which is why the uh, these these different, you know, color revolutionary forces that were very well armed took over the airport, because it seems like the only reason why you would take over the airport would be that you would expect not only supplies to come in, but also people to come in, um, <clears throat> which again, all of that was put down, but it would have been likely the case that he would have been brought, brought in very, very quickly. And, um, and that did not happen. Uh, Tokayev, the current, um, the current president is, uh, he's been playing a bit of a, a dual game, but it seems like he's finally realized that his only future right now is fully working with Russia, with Belarus, with the BRI, with other things. And, uh, and seeing that he had a pretty funny, you, like, yeah. you look at all these leaders the last several uh, years have been playing the middle game, and they all of a sudden jolt and they wake up and they realize, okay, I can't go along with the West. I mean, you, you, you've seen Lukashenko in Belarus, and now you see Takayev in uh, in Kazakhstan, where he's like, well, you know, he tried to play. Everybody was trying to be like Erdogan. You know, Erdogan will play the middle line. He will. He's both sides. He's you don't mm -hmm. know which way he's going, right? Now. And even surviving an assassination attempt by the CIA, somehow this guy still plays the middle. It's, it's beyond me. And, and I think a lot of these Eurasian powers are starting to realize, hey, you know what? Uh, it's better that we chummy up to the regional power. Otherwise, we might not be in power. Yeah, absolutely. 
Yeah, I mean, you you can't keep playing this game forever. I mean, things when when you have a relative stability in the world system, maybe you could try to get advantage from all different you know players around you. If you're especially if you're a smaller medium country, uh, but now we're at a point of serious decision making where the system itself is imploding. So the Western system that people have been trying to get advantage out of um, is is finished, and the natural tendency of those orchestrating that system, that cage, is to try to destroy any opposition. So it, you cannot continue to gain out of trying to um, play along with this unipolar uh, beast. And I mean, Turkey's discovering it pretty fastly. They're, 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 still, they're still making a lot of bad maneuvers, but overall, Erdogan has increasingly made the majority of his interests tied to working with China, working with, with Russia on the BRI, branching out with diplomatic exchanges with uh, Iran, as well as economic exchanges on building rail together between Iran and Turkey. Um, so you have at least a, now, a, a motion towards competency. And as a consequence, not only did he get a uh, an assassination attempt, a coup d'etat attempt, uh, run by the CIA a few years ago, but there's been constant economic warfare. The Turkish uh, I think it's a lira. I, I, I don't actually know what, what the, yes, the Turkish Turkish lira is lira. It is. Uh, but yeah, the, the, their currency has collapsed by over forty percent, uh, largely due to economic warfare, speculation against them. So you, you know, there's a war going on that people have to realize how it's being played, and it's not just a physical war like the old school neocon bomb a country type of approach. There's it's a multi leveled war that it involves cultural cognitive warfare, it involves economic warfare. Um, and it evol involves this type of fifth column stuff, um, utilizing civil society groups. You know, George Soros, openly, his open, open society of Kazakhstan had put in $3.6 million just in 2020 alone, funding eco-activists, um, human rights activists of different sorts, media outlets, documentaries, propaganda outlets all over the place, especially focusing on the young under the age of 30 uh, to radicalize them, but also schools since 1995. Soros's operations have poured uh, money into reforming and shaping the curriculum of kindergartens through elementary to high schools to universities all over Kazakhstan, thousands of them, and also creating what are called Soros Fellows, scholarships given to well over 2,000 um, Kazakh young people to be trained and indoctrinated overseas in the United States in uh, Soros's former university in Budapest in London, and then redeployed back, kind of like they do with the Rhodes Scholar program, to become right. agents of influence within those countries. And on Soros's website, they brag that um, it brags that um, a huge amount of their fellows are integrated into the private sector as well as into the public sector. And we've we've begun seeing more and more of them come out now. So, I mean, the only way that that Kazakhstan is going to have a future is if it continues on the path of working with the BRI, working with this multipolar alliance. Um, but the other thing is not working. It can't work anymore. And I think that that's actually a point of, I get a lot of pleasure out of the fact that I, I, the empire just is not getting anything they want accomplished from ever since Libya. That was the last time the oligarchy was able to achieve what it wanted by snapping its fingers and getting a regime change. But even that didn't really work out. Right. Cause right. immediately Russia foresaw what was happening. It didn't even they originally wanted their neo-Nazi uh, provocateurs to uh, wait in the wings for 
eight, nine more months until the elections that were supposed to happen in 2014 before they would launch them as a chaos operation. And it was only when Yanukovych in, what was it, November, end of November two, 2013, when he said, surprisingly, we actually you know what, we don't really want to in integrate into the Eurasian Economic Union, uh, sorry, into the European Economic Union anymore. We'd rather work with the Eurasian Economic Union. That's what we see as having a future. The IMF just seems to want to bring us into modes of austerity um, and cheap labor, whereas with Russia, it seems they actually want to have industrial production. They want to have, we actually have a future with that other system, which is much more in our interest. And they canceled their integration with Europe uh, plans. And as soon as that happened, you had the early launching, the, 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 you know, of this, this Maidan thing. And we know that the effect of that was Russia was able to foresee it. You had a very solid uh, collaboration, an emergency uh, plebiscite that occurred in Crimea as soon as the Nazis were making it known that that they were going to ban the use of Russian it, all over uh, government or even private sector uh, enterprises. Where you know, if you're a Crimean, where ninety or almost ninety percent of the population speaks Russian as a primary language and sees themselves identity-wise as Russian, correct. That's, a threat, especially if these guys are going to be coming at you, like waving bandera flags with swastikas on their uh, on That's their so vest as a battalion. Huh? The the veneration of bandera. I mean, isn't it funny? Like you, you want to talk about you know a lot of the neocons will, will will talk about how Palestine is a made up state, this that and the other, but you want to talk about a, a modern day made up state that that that's Ukraine, man. Yeah. Ukraine is a fictitious state. It, it, it is basically the, the ground zero, the birth of the 1,000-year Russian state to begin with. And then if they want to go back and reach into anything Ukrainian, and you keep bumping into neo-Nazis. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, and it seems like a big, a big chunk of this uh, was a, lo a lot of the fuel was put on this fire of this false nationalism by, uh, by Trotsky and, uh, and the collaborators of Hitler. So back in the 30s, a lot of people don't know this because it's largely been written out of our, our history books. And it's really just because of the work I, I've cited him a few times, but th there's a book I've, or a series of books I've been reading by Grover Fur, an amazing historian. This is called uh, Trotsky and the Military Conspiracy, which goes through hardcore evidence, a lot of declassified information that demonstrates that it, there really was a fifth column run around Trotsky who was kicked out of, of Soviet Russia in 1927 by Stalin, um, who he had a doctrine for permanent revolution um, and he was always the banker's favorite. He was the one working with Bertrand Russell in 1919 when Russell went to Russia with H.G. Wells. He was the one who went to New York for several months uh, in 1917 and was protected by Woodrow Wilson and met with the high, highest leading financiers like Jacob Schiff, uh, Warburg, um, many of the bankers that were funding the Bolshevik Revolution, which was, in many ways, a color revolution right. uh, modeled on the, the French Revolution earlier to overthrow the czarist system. Why? Just like the French Revolution, which had a government which was pro-United States under King Louis XVI and uh, Marquis de Lafayette. That was a government which actually wanted to break free of the system of empire and help create a, a type of situation where you could have republics uh, working and cooperating instead of you know the old systems of, of oligarchs. That had to go back in the, the 18th century and just, just like that, the system of 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 the Romanovs, which was a czarist system that had adopted and embraced 
Abraham Lincoln's policies for protectionism, long-term credit emissions for large-scale development, like the Trans-Siberian Railway for industrial activity, all of that had to be destroyed. And the way you do that, you light a fire, just like they're trying to do under the uh, the belly of Russia and China today and the BRI, which is largely a revival of this Lincoln, Tsar Alexander II uh, type of policy of making the, the economy behave according to the needs of people. You make money serve the, the interests of the people by building things that increase and uplift people. So this right. is what they've been destroying. Trotsky said, if I get to power, and there's, there's letters where him and his collaborators are working with Bandera's networks in Ukraine, in Ukraine the Nazis, uh, with, he's meeting with Hitler's officials, he's meeting with Japanese fascists, and he's basically promising them that Russia will, he will bring Russia into the system of the New World Order that they want to bring online happily, and he's promising Ukrainian Nazis that he's going to give them total independence. He's promising the, the Polish Nazis Insanity. the same thing. Yeah. So, you know, like we're told, oh, Stalin was this paranoid schizophrenic who just made things up to destroy his political enemies. There was never a Trotsky-run conspiracy. That that was made up by Stalin. No, it's actually true. And what was created didn't disappear um, after, after Trotsky died. That entire fifth column embedded inside of Russia that came in with the Bolsheviks that Stalin was fighting against because you have nationalist patriots and you have fifth columnists. Uh, enmeshed in every country. This it was no exception back in the twenties and thirties and forties. You know, just like today, he Stalin fought against that. He tried to do certain things. Like he 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 had problems. I agree with that. He definitely had had his excesses, but um, at the same time, he definitely banned things like cybernetics, which was what Bertrand Russell's followers created during the World War II as a new science of control. It was a science that would be governed, utilized as a, a tool of the elite to manage the new system coming out of World War II that became the Cold War. It was cybernetics. Uh, you need, you know, the idea was you have one helmsman, one department where you have a small grouping permitted to uh, see what the whole is doing, whether it's in military, whether it's in bureaucracy, but everybody else would be specialized in accordance with a sort of uh, hierarchical structure of thought conditioning and would be embedded with hyper-specialization in myopic reasoning to be cogs in a machine that they would not see, nobody else would see what the whole machine is doing. It would be, an, that's that's the foundation of the formula for the modern deep state, cybernetics. This was banned in Russia because it was recognized as, the, because this was the automation of human beings and the destruction of the idea of humanity with the idea that human beings are just these machines to be controlled by a master class of engineers. Um, and it was only when Stalin died that you had this rehabilitated along with Trotsky, um, with Khrushchev, who started this process of rehabilitating, making cybernetics in the early 60s, the governing logic of controls of Russia, um, and increasingly making Trotsky's collaborators as well appear to be rehabilitated as well. Um, and this has been there all the whole way through, but it was pushed back. In, the, in 64, Khrushchev was pushed out, you know, they could see him as this loose cannon renegade idiot. Um, and there was a certain nationalist uh, pushback that tried to put the lid on the cybernetics thing, but it, the genie had come out of the bottle. It was really tough at that point to manage. The Soviet system was very mismanaged at that point going forward, but it was only with the collapse of the Soviet Union completely um, that this thing was amplified massively where you had the creation of this new sort of technotronic era 
um, of technocrats that were brought in, trained in Harvard, trained in Yale, Oxford, and then brought back and installed in positions of the Russian uh, banking system, the Russian security system, working very closely with CIA operatives who basically ran Russia's entire military. Um, all of this stuff was 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 created. Maybe next week we can talk a little bit more about that. But all that to say, it's the same sort of thing that's been deployed today across the board, and it doesn't work anymore. Ever since Ukraine, it doesn't really work. They tried to do it with Ethiopia, right? And that has so far uh, failed with the the Tigray People's Liberation Front, uh, which is a foreign NED funded operation as well, which has been in unsuccessful at doing what they thought would be uh, something that should take them maybe just a few weeks to overthrow the Ethiopian government, which is working very closely with the, the China Belt and Road Initiative. Um, that has failed. The government has stayed strong, stayed in power. Um, they have been pushed back to a northern little fringe zone of Ethiopia. So that that's something which has failed. Syria is still standing. There's hope for reconstruction now, finally. Um, Belarus, that didn't really work out. They tried really, really hard to overthrow the government there over the past few months. That is something which it looks like for the most part, uh, the fire is being reined in. Hong Kong, they tried heavily to use that as a spark plug. That didn't work out. Now they're still pushing on Taiwan and that's still a, a loose cannon. But overall, they haven't gotten what they wanted. And with, with Russia coming out saying, you know, Putin coming out saying there are absolute red lines and we're going to be forced to respond, which could absolutely um, destroy the security of Europe if you if you don't abide by certain common sense red lines, meaning no more increase of NATO. No, don't get Georgia or or Ukraine or anyone else into NATO. That's one of the key red lines. Don't bring shorter medium range missiles into Ukraine. That's another red line. Just don't do that. Um, and ever since he did that, now all of a sudden you actually have voices across Italy, across France, who are all saying, whoa, you know, they're realizing that they actually will be targeted under a nuclear uh, exchange. And they're actually pushing back and saying, well, maybe we shouldn't speak about Russia so negatively anymore. Like, and you actually are finally getting some resistance, even from Europe. So the game is very different from what it used to be. And that's very important for, for people to realize the oligarchy does not have the type of influence and power they want us to believe they do have. So, uh, yeah, there is there is light at the end of the tunnel in this thing. But if you're just looking at it from the standpoint of a Westerner watching Western press and trying to make sense of it by listening to Alex Jones, you won't make this won't make any sense. I 100 percent. You'd actually think the globalists are winning if you listen to Alex Jones and they're not. Yeah. yeah. So, I, I, so I, always I always tell people, look, if you Alex is great at what he does. I mean, he's, he's fun. He's entertaining. A lot of the domestic stuff. He's he's on point. But mm -hmm. He, he can't come on – he cannot come on a program like this and talk to you and I about geostrategic. Not happening. Or the economic. It's not happening. It's not. It's not in a million years. It's, it's like you're, you're bringing a, a kindergartner to a Ph.D. Um, uh, you know, situation here. It's, just not, it's, not, it's not possible. Well, you know, it's it's I think it just a, it's a cynical tendency to, to only to, – to wire the mind to only be able to see the evil – and it's binary, uh, and, man. It's binary thinking. That's all it is. It's 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 a stupid, closed-minded way of thinking. And, and, and honestly, it's like again, you look like what you said. You look at it from a Western standpoint of view. All you'll think is that this is all Western focus, and the West is and the Western globalists are winning, and it's a, it's a no world order takeover. You know, it's not the case, man. Yeah, I mean, I, there are there are 
and you, there is penetration, but you have to be a, have a sense in your mind that every country has legitimate. Like, I mean, the the one point I just brought up in a dispute I'm having now with uh, with someone who's a writer um, is that look, if Russia was fully under the control, 100 percent, the way Jones and many others try to make it appear. Uh, but if Russia was fully, if Putin was fully on board with the World Economic Forum's Great Reset, with the New World Order, and so was China. But if you know, if Russia was First of all, why would Putin not have continued Yeltsin's policies of perestroika privatizations that were going on in the 1990s? Why would that not have continued? Why did that stop? Why did the the, the Russian oligarchs who were created in the 90s, why did they uh, get exiled or face prison um, and, and, and have to, you know, escape to London? Why did that happen? Why, why did, did Putin intervene on... Uh, the United States from when it was trying to blow up Syria. Why didn't they just let Syria become another Libya or Iraq? Um, how about China? Same thing, right? Like, why did did they not just continue on with Zhao Ziyang's liberalization of the markets back in the 1980s? That was what David Rockefeller wanted when he was setting up trila trilateral commission meetings in Beijing in 1982-83 um, and bringing in Milton Friedman and... Um, various futurists and transhumanists who were brainwashing the young elite uh, reformers of China and things like the one child policy coming out of the club of Rome. Why didn't the club of Rome stay there? Why did they, why did China undo the one child policy? Why did they undo the two child policy? Why didn't they, right? Why didn't all of these things just continue? Why did, why did China ban Soros? Why didn't they let him just stay there and continue doing what he was doing throughout the eighties? That's all part of what the, you know, the, the so-called, uh, you know, new world order was all about. So you're just ignoring all of that in order just to focus on your impotence, which is there's nothing we can do. So I don't have any responsibility, but to tell people how bad it is. And that's my responsibility, which is really just like misery loves company. <laughs> that, that, that's all it is, man. Yeah. And what you need to do right now, Matthew, is you need to take super male vitality. Infowars.com. Mm -hmm. Or you get this like, very naive form of anarchistic -y sort of libertarian uh, mass revolt as well. You know, like the people need to rise up, rise up and, and fight this in, in some very vague way, like without a sense of, okay, well, what is a national banking policy? How did this work in the past? Like, how does a, how does a concrete, if you're going to do battle with the world's most centralized, powerful oligarchical force operating transnationally, um, you need to have a pretty competent sense of the powers available to you as a weapon to do battle. That means the sovereign nation state. You have to understand that the science of political economy as it has worked in the past to subvert the powers of the oligarchy in order to be able to, to do anything. Because if you just get a bunch of masses out there without a thought in their heads, guarantee you that will be weaponized and used as a chaos operation to create another civil war um, at, at worst or something else. But it will it will basically be an anarchistic -y type of... Um, chaos operation, which will work against your own interests. So you have to have an idea of, well, where are we going? What does work? How is Russia and China actually fight? How did they fight back um, in the case of China against the Soros operation in the 1980s? In the case of Russia, how did they fight back um, under Primakov and Putin, um, you know, after 1998, 1999, especially? How has that fight been waged? What what works and what doesn't work. 
because then you could sort of calibrate and figure out, well, what do we have available to us? And it's right there in the Declaration of Independence in the Constitution and the examples of Abraham Lincoln's greenback system. It's, it's right there with, if you look at how Franklin Roosevelt organized his battle with Wall Street in the city of London starting from 1933 and the, the utilization of the Reconstruction Finance Corporation, as well as a whole myriad of things. And we talked about Glass-Steagall, that was Franklin Roosevelt, the breaking up of the banks into, into speculative banks that you allow to go to, to go bankrupt and flush if they if they gamble with other people's money and they lose on their bets. You don't bail them out if the things are separated. And commercial banks you protect with a government insurance of some sort if there's a problem because the commercial banks have people's savings, they have investments tied to the real economy that you that is in the the interest of the nation to preserve. That's something that can be re rehabilitated if it's if it's been managed badly. You put it through a sort of reorganization. That's, that was what was done in the 1930s under the bank holidays. And they were rewired with a new mandate to emit credit, utilizing the Reconstruction Finance Corporation, utilizing the Tennessee Valley Authority, utilizing the, the, the Works Progress Administration, and so many other administrations created as tools of a national banking type of approach, which is what Lincoln did earlier. This is what Hamilton had done earlier uh, to emit credit for the real economy and for building concrete projects with 20 or more year orientations. Um, that was how to do it. You don't allow private central bankers, you don't allow the Federal Reserve to control your economic policy and your political policy the way we do it today. So you got to know that. You got to know how this was revived under John F. Kennedy. How did he tap into this policy with his uh, tax credits, his industrial tax credits, which were a vital component of a reactivation of that national banking strategy that provided an incentive to make it more valuable to do something productive, to build rail, to build hydroelectric dams, to do useful things as, a, as an entrepreneur. It, instead of doing speculative things, it became less uh, financially viable to do speculative, useless activity that was destructive versus doing productive things that employed people and uplifted the national power. So all of these things are available to us. The problem is they're not available to us from the standpoint of the conventional channels one would expect. The schools, you can't study this stuff if you go to the Harvard School of Business um, or management, you know? You, you have to sort of take a bit of an autodidact sort of uh, personal responsibility to read firsthand sources. Look at good historians who acknowledge this. Read how that works. Buy my books is another good way to start doing this as an introduction. Um, as an example, which you can get off of my website. And then you could look and see, okay, how does how would this be reactivated if the US was going to survive today and not go into a complete dark age spiral of collapse, civil war, and uh, technocratic fascism? How because you know you have to imagine how would it work otherwise? How would it work if we were actually seeing Russia and China as our allies? Like we're you know, we're we're acting as though China has uh has uh, to obey what the U.S. wants. And it's like, no, China has control of the majority of rare earths in the world. You know, 30% of the fertilizers are produced in China. You want to like feed 8 billion lives? You can't do that without fertilizers. I'm sorry. Um, they, they have access to the productive process. Even microchip uh, making now is increasingly becoming controlled uh, by China, which was formerly controlled by the United States. Yeah, Huawei is leading the charge on that one. Yeah. 
And China has an atomic, an, an economic atomic bomb on their own, which is on the one hand, they could just sell, they could, they could dump the US dollar. I mean, they're the, they're the only reason they've been buying US debt and you know they got over a trillion of this useless stuff. And if they wanted to, they could just sell it and just cripple the United States completely, but they don't wanna do that. They actually don't, surprise, surprise, want to destroy the United States. They, they recognize how much chaos and havoc that would cause for all of their trading partners, um, including the potential that they see hopefully the US could uh, adopt by getting its act together. Um, but they could, I mean, seriously do what they've already started doing, which is uh, cut off their exports of vital materials that the US needs, like the US pharmaceutical industry, something like 80%. A, a friend of mine, Amon, uh, he did a wonderful article on strategic culture where he just goes through some of the details, but something like 80% of the products and precursors of pharmaceutical industries from the West come from China. They could just stop it. You know, how would the West do if you just cut off all pharmaceutical uh, production? Considering we're the, we're the most heavily populated, we're the most heavily medicated country on God's green earth with the highest psychotropic use, I don't want to be anywhere near anyone when that happens. <laughs> Go to their, their withdrawal. Yeah, exactly. Um, military, even the U.S. military and, and defense contractors are receiving a lot of their supplies from China, a huge amount. And China could just say, and they actually produced the government white paper um, just recently asking the question, well, maybe we should stop. Why are we doing this? Maybe we should stop supplying the, the U.S., which seems to want to try to provoke a war with us with the materials needed to go to war with us. Um, they already have export bans. You know, you have to apply now for a license um, to the Chinese government in order to export a variety of strategic uh, resources, finished and unfinished goods. So these are things which China has as, as trump cards, which could be utilized at any point. And the US is just not capable. Britain is not capable currently, it seems, of recognizing this because they're still drunk on hegemony, on this idea of superiority, um, which... The, the time for that is over. Like now is a time where humble pie has to be eaten. Um, and, you know, we got to work with it with something that is viable and in accord with our long-term interests as a species, not going along with a great reset, which again, the great reset agenda, of the world economic, economic form. Yes. They have penetration in these countries. These countries are, they don't know exactly. They're not taking this stuff on head on in terms of global, the global warming swindle or the jab, uh, the jab problem. The best thing that we see coming out of Russia, China, and many of their Eurasian allies is a resistance to mandatory vaccinations, a resistance to the gene therapy approach to things, and a weariness over the project for New American Century, which had made a point 20 years ago in their policy documents that genetic warfare utilizing targeting of Slavic and Asian genotypes will be utilized in the warfare of the 21st century and beyond. So they're very concerned at any moment of, a, you know, Fort Detrick type of CIA managed and deployed uh, serious gene warfare against them. So right now there's a lot going on behind the scenes. We have to sort of infer it in some cases, because if you just hear what Putin says or Xi Jinping says publicly, um, it would cause you maybe to make the sorts of conclusions that Alex Jones or others have made that they're all you know, like Putin spoke well about Klaus Schwab. He's, he's, uh, rewarded certain obvious agents like uh, Anatoly Chubai to become influential in Russia. Um, he's put in certain policies from the World Health Organization, as they have in, in China. Um, they've spoken well about green energies, and they've actually done green energy uh, investments in China and in some cases in Russia. 
Uh, that, does that make them into depopulation, one world government and everything else? No, that's not how things work. There's there's another way that this game is played and we'd love it. I would love it if they were like John F. Kennedy or something and they would just like, these governments would just, you know, Xi Jinping and Putin. I'd love it if they would just go and take a stand completely and call this thing out as a giant fraud. I would, it would be great. But that's not how actual real politics works. Correct. And real politics is is about uh, moving thousands of different pieces methodically, strategically, and in multiple multiple layers. It's a it's a, you never show your hand. You never show your hand because this is for all the marbles, folks. And we yeah. are witnessing the the severing of an old financial system, which is the unipolar world, and that is coming to an end. And this is why the multipolar world and what's happening with the cooperation of nations is vital, and that it be not interrupted and it comes forth and it's the only thing that's going to liberate humanity go ahead Matt. no i, I couldn't say that uh, any better that's exactly it so we're we're now at the point that where choices have to be made i think that's a great way to to wrap up our our current broadcast great. and uh, maybe next week what we can do is pick it up as i, I mentioned to you uh in our, our chats before the this show um i'd like to, to talk a little bit about a concept of a hamiltonian bank of russia because a lot of people don't fully understand why it is that russia is not able to get things done the way that China does? Why do, why do they not have that economic flexibility and independence from the IMF the way China has or the way the West used to have a long time ago? So what's up? What's up with Russia? And how could Russia actually achieve the sorts of development goals for Arctic development, for the expansion of the Far East, which we know Putin really wants to do, but he can't do it under the current Western liberal-oriented a technocratic management of the central banking system of Russia as it was set up in 1991-92. Um, so what is up with that and how could Russia actually have a Hamiltonian reform of the banking system? What does that mean? What did Hamilton mean in when he talked about political economics and banking as opposed to the private central bankers of London and today's Wall Street who have a very different idea of economics same words, different meaning, different role that economics plays in a broader process. So how would that change things? And how could this really flank uh, the West in a, in a wonderful way, which would even allow the West a chance to rediscover what it once was and could become again, if we choose to not want to uh, be destroyed? Very well said. And we're looking forward to that. So folks, again, keep it queued up here. Again, check out Matthew's works. The links are in the description box. The links are in the description box. Well, thank you all for uh, joining us today. And with that being said, we're over now.